Dear listeners, welcome to our podcast. This is a podcast from a project at Preo, the Peace Research Institute Oslo. The project is called FAIR, or more fully, On Fair Terms, The Ethics of Peace Negotiations and Mediation. A very interesting topic, since peace negotiations and uh, being a peace mediator, that's truly complex and it raises a lot of issues about uh, right and wrong, about justice, and these are the questions that we are going to explore. My name is Henrik Sysa. I'm a research professor here at Prio, and I'm here with my good friend and colleague, senior researcher, Christopher Lidén. Thank you. Thanks, Henrik. And today we're honored to have uh, Nadim Kouri here. He's an associate professor at Inland Norway University of Applied Science. And Nadim, why don't you tell us just a few words about yourself, please? Yes, uh, thank you both for inviting me here and for welcoming me to, to the project. It's really been a great experience so far. So in brief, I'm a, a Palestinian academic that's been trained in, in, in France and in the US who's worked in Norway and in Palestine. So I've been going around and as I went around, you know, I was always exploring these, these themes of, of memory and narratives and, and peace negotiations. So it's a great way for things to come to full fruition here. And as you said, I work at the Inland Norway University of Applied Sciences, and I also have an affiliation with Oslo New University College in uh, in Peace and Conflict. So do I, uh, Nadim. So it's good uh, that we can work together in that context as well. Uh, start now by telling us a bit about the interest in the topic, because the topic here are the Middle East negotiations known as the Oslo Accords and also surrounding questions. Where did your interest in that topic come from? So like I think like many research projects, it's personal, you know, at the end of the day, we're also trying to understand our, ourselves as we understand, we try to understand these difficult topics. So I grew up during the first Palestinian Intifada. So I was born in 81, the Intifada explodes a few years after that. And then this eventually, you know, with other larger geopolitical changes in the Middle East, including the first Gulf War and so forth, we have the, what's called the Oslo peace process. And before that, the Madrid Peace Conference, which brought the, the Arab states and, and Israel to the negotiating table. So I think part of my interest is to really try to understand this era that just shaped my existence, because there's a huge shift on the ground from growing up during the First Intifada under direct Israeli military occupation to suddenly seeing Palestinian autonomy and what that meant. So I think there's that's the the personal story behind it. But also I'm trained as a, as a philosopher and political scientist, so I've been also been working a lot on, on narratives and the importance of memory for, for identity and for international politics. So these things kind of came along quite naturally. Right, and in our project, you contributed with a, a case brief, as we call it, on memory and forgetting at the negotiating table where you look at the case of Israel-Palestinian peace process between 1993 and 2001. And uh, could you just give us a little background to the setting of this uh, case study? So I will admit, as many of you also like reminded me, this was quite a strange way to approach a topic. You know, the Middle East peace process, specifically the Oslo peace process, is typically focused on issues of, of territory and refugees. These are kind of the main issues. So choosing memory as an angle is a bit, maybe a bit strange, especially memory is quite an intangible thing. So it's like, how do you, how do you negotiate that? How can you measure that? How, so, uh, so it, you know, I, I admit that maybe that's not the most uh, typical angle through which the Oslo peace process is typically studied, but it's quite crucial, right? Given for, for many reasons. I mean, for the reason that 
if memory is such an important part of identity, and identity is a crucial issue to this asymmetrical conflict between Israel and the Palestinians, then it makes sense to think of memory as also relevant and important to peace negotiations or their failures, right, obviously. So this is kind of the background issue. And I think as I just to go back to the personal story, you know, what I witnessed during the Oslo peace process, I mean, as a teenager just growing up who was not fully aware of politics, what I saw as opposed to when I was growing up during the first intifada was the sudden explosion of memory, Palestinian memory work. You have to understand that during the uh, occupation, direct occupation of Israel, there's still occupation, but it has now changed when there was no Palestinian authority, you know, any mention of Palestine was illegal, right? Just drawing a Palestinian flag was punishable by law, raising a Palestinian flag. So there was no memory work per se, you know, there was no Palestinian textbooks in schools had no mention of Palestine. And if they did, these passages would simply be blank and censored. So you grew up in this environment and then suddenly there's an affirmation of Palestinian identity, which exists because the Palestinian authority has some kind of autonomy, and amidst this autonomy, it could create a national narrative. And it also opened up a space where people could also explore issues of memory. And in 1998, that's for me where it kind of all comes to life when there's a demonstration for the Palestinian Nakba. It's 50 years since the Nakba, so it's a very important and date. the Nakba is? The Nakba is an Arabic word for the catastrophe of 1948, which refers to the, the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians and, and so forth. And it's a foundational moment in the Palestinian national narrative. So in 1998, there's a huge demonstration organized in the streets, and I was part of it. So this is, you, know, you have to understand, a, a teenager where, I mean, this for me really introduced me to politics in many ways. I felt like, wow, there, there's, I was part of something much larger than myself. And I couldn't really feel that during the first intifada. I mean, of course, I felt it because of the intifada. But because it, memory was criminalized and securitized by Israel, So it kind of, it was a very meaningful experience for me. So that's, that's the, the kind of the, the background to this case brief. Of course, we are sitting in Oslo and we're talking about Oslo all the time here. Remind uh, the listener, uh, when was the Oslo process and why on earth did it end up in this city? Yes, it's strange. I mean, Oslo has become such a common word in, in the Arabic language in Palestine. And we tend to forget that it refers to an actual city where I live now. Which is a, uh, which is nice to 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 live in Oslo. So uh, briefly, I mean, there's a long story here, but that is too complex to enter about. You know, and peace negotiations or lack thereof really begin right after the first Arab-Israeli war in 1948. Right, soon after, this is where the basics of the issues are laid. So the ref the Palestinian refugee problem is created then. The Green Line, which is supposed to be the border of a future Palestinian state, which never came to be and was actually erased during the peace process, is established then. That's the Armistice Line created in 1949, called the Green Line, with where you know, all these neighboring Arab states kind of agreed to it. I mean, they lost the war. So the basics are set there. And you do have the beginnings of secret peace negotiations happening then. There, This is just the stuff of historians, right? This is very secret. There's some signaling from the Syrian states, from the Egyptians, but all this is not clear and also not, it's not serious. You know, war is still the, 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 what shapes the, these relationships and, and the need to reconquer territory and so forth. And then in 1967, there's another war where Israel occupies the rest of the palace of historical Palestine, so the West Bank and, and Gaza. 
and also Sinai and the Golan Heights and so forth. And this gets us closer to what we were negotiating in Oslo, right? Because now the solution becomes land for peace. This is the, the beginning of this formula. And at the beginning, it excludes Palestinians entirely, right? So land for peace is, a, is an agreement amongst Israel and neighboring Arab states. So what you have in these early, I wouldn't call them peace negotiations, but attempts to negotiate peace is a series of issues, a solution, a principle, land for peace, and parties, Arab, and Israel, and Arab states and Israel, excluding the Palestinians, purposely so. So the Palestinians are reduced to human, humanitarian issues. So the refugees is a humanitarian, humanitarian issue that needs to be addressed. And Palestinians are not recognized as, a, as an entity worthy of self-determination and so forth. So what, you happen, what happens there is the Palestinians themselves take matters into their own hands. So the PLO and Fatah, which exist prior to 67, but really come to the fore after 67 and decide that Palestine is an issue for us to deal with. And they become accused of becoming a terrorist organization. Yes, others, because right? mm. uh, liberation in this sense is liberation through armed struggle. I mean, that's that's the, the, the main motto, that's the main idea. And this is you know, in sync with the times, right? We're talking about decolonization in, in Algeria, we're talking about Vietnam, we're, we're into China before that. So the PLO, and which is an umbrella group for different resistance movements, understands liberation very much in the same way as the Algerians did and so forth. And their goal is to put Palestine on the map through armed struggle, but actually their main success is putting it on the map diplomatically, right? So there's so, there was so much fuss about the PLO at the time being a terrorist organization, but its main success was actually not military. Its main success was diplomatic. It was to put Palestinians on the map, something that Israel never accepted, but eventually with time, I mean, they become non-observer states. Uh, sorry, the PLO gains non-observer uh, state status at the UN in 74 and so forth. So eventually, I mean, the PLO managed to impose themselves diplomatically. And that's where Oslo is, right? Because the Oslo uh, process was actually an inclusion, represent an inclusion of PLO and the Palestinians. Yes, this is the first time that there's actual negotiations between Israel and the PLO. Now, we just we need to just take two steps back before we get into this. Is So two things are important here. Um, first of all, prior to the Oslo peace process, there's the Madrid peace uh, conference organized by President Bush the first. After the Gulf War, there's this idea that, okay, now, you know, we need to have a comprehensive peace agreement after the, the invasion of uh, Kuwait. The fact that Arab states helped the U.S. and the U.S. thought, okay, we need to reciprocate and try to find a solution to the Palestinian issue. And this, these negotiations exclude the PLO, purposely so. Israel, which is led by a right-wing government at the time, says I will not they will not negotiate with the PLO. So you have a joint Jordanian-Palestinian delegation. That's not working. And as that's not working, you have secret negotiations in Oslo between the PLO and Israel that are direct. Now, why would the PLO decide to negotiate at the time when they were excluded from Madrid and so forth have to do with geopolitical reasons? The first Gulf War was a disaster for the PLO because they actually officially sided with Saddam Hussein. So this led to their exclusion and their boycott, not boycott, but the punishment by neighboring Arab states that withdraw funds. I mean, famously in Kuwait, the Palestinians are expelled fully. I mean, my uncle lived in Kuwait and after 91 was expelled and is now lived lives in, in Cyprus. 
So and there's also the the Soviet Union, which is no longer there, and which was the main source of funding for the PLO and the political support. So the PLO is isolated, and its its only lifeline is actually negotiating peace. So the PLO enters these negotiations very much as a weak party, trying to save itself, which is why it comp- ends up compromising actually so much with Israel. You are listening to a podcast from Prio, the Peace Research Institute, Oslo. It's about ethical issues in uh, negotiations, and we're taking our point of departure in uh, Nadim Khoury's excellent uh, case brief that you can find online about memory and forgetting at the negotiating table. Tell us a bit about the ethical quandaries that memory represents in these sorts of negotiations. So before getting into actual ethical quandaries, I think one main issue, and that's not only ethical, is Do you deal with the past or not? Do you bring this thing to the table or not? Right. This is, um, and by the past, I mean many things here. I mean actual past injustices. I mean representations of the past. I mean radically conflicting historical narratives between Israel and Palestine. There's many things, right? So the question is, should this be actually brought into the negotiations? Do we have to kind of discuss these things? Do we have to discuss the symbolic representation of the pasts as we discuss the actual issues. As we negotiate territory, do we negotiate this historical meaning of territory? As we negotiate the refugee issue, do we also have to address the underlying narratives of this issue? Who's responsible for the refugee problem and so forth? So these issues kick in quite early on. And actually, interestingly, while memory is not seen to be an important thing for the Oslo peace process, the first unofficial agreement amongst the negotiators in Oslo is to never speak about the past. So this this is and this, this is taken for memoirs of actual negotiators, so I don't know if we could really trust this, but the idea is that as soon as Yuri Davis and Ahmed Qura'a meet in Oslo, they begin by disagreeing about the past, you know, whose home this is, where the Jews are really from, and so forth. And then they agree that, okay, we can't move forward if we engage in these discussions. And all mediators also support this position, right? That you cannot talk about these things because that's going to hinder any progress moving forward. So the past begins, as, as it appears, originally is it appears as a something that hinders peace negotiations, as something that's going to stop negotiators from actually agreeing. So there's a kind of implicit agreement to not speak about the past, which is constantly violated throughout the peace process, of course. Hmm. And uh, the, then the ethical issues that you raise, uh, you distinguish between different three different approaches to, the, to this. The details are in the case brief, so you don't have to tell the whole story, but just take us through these three alternative ways of de- dealing with the past. Sure. So in the case brief, I had to be a bit, maybe a bit simplistic, but just trying to like, simplify and think of three different frames to which we could analyze this issue. So I offer three different readings. The first is to understand the Oslo peace process as a case of what uh, the anthropologist Paul Connerton calls prescriptive forgetting. And prescriptive forgetting is something that we we know exists. So here, prescription is when you prescribe, you ought to forget. Why? In order to, to achieve peace. And there are examples of prescriptive forgetting Historically, I mean, if you go back all the way to ancient Greece and then the, the civil war between the oligarchs and the Democrats in Athens, the first agreement 
is to not to talk about the past. Like what happened was so difficult that we should just agree to move on. So here you have already a first example, which is very early, right? Of an agreement not to speak about the past for the sake of a greater social good, peace, security, and so forth. And this goes on through time until, you know, 1975, for example, in Spain, when you have, um, after the death of, death of Franco, you have also what's called the Pact of Forgetfulness, Pacto del Olivido. I'm sorry, my Spanish is terrible, so I should not even try to speak Spanish. But the point being here is there are cases where there's an agreement to forget, and these agreements are actually written on paper. Now, is it also peace process a case of prescriptive forgetting? Well, not fully because nothing is actually written, right? So although I, I just alluded to case to discussions where negotiators say we should not talk about the past, I wouldn't go as far to say me as this is a case of prescriptive forgetting, but it could be. It could be interpreted as such. Although it's not written on paper, there's a kind of agreement not to deal with it. And you see the peace process is a very pragmatic, dry, technical process which does not delve into the deeper issues. So that's one option, just to agree not to talk about it, dot. The second approach is what I call strategic forgetting, where, like prescriptive forgetting, you agree not to talk about the past, but you're not excluding the past from the scope of negotiations. You say, okay, we can't talk about it now, but let's strategically bracket it and address it at a later stage. And here, one might say that the Oslo peace process resembles more a case of strategic forgetting, where obviously just you know, talking about the past is seen as counterproductive in the beginning because it will only hinder negotiations, but that this is an issue we have to address at a later stage. And the Oslo peace process is by design an incremental peace process. You know, it's, it's, it's not a peace agreement in itself. It's kind of a roadmap towards an agreement where you build, initially build trust by going through a series of, uh, of steps to reach a more substantive agreement later on. In that sense, a substantive agreement is one which would include things like dealing with the past, whatever that would mean. But that's purposely, strategically postponed to a later stage. And then there's the, the third type, right? Yes. So again, here, still being a bit simplistic, but a third type is a peace process that includes uh, transitional justice mechanisms, which are, by definition, you know, transitional justice is a way of dealing with the past. There's huge literature on transitional justice, so I, I realize that this, this might be a bit simplistic, but if you contrast it with both of the first approaches, prescriptive forgetting and strategic forgetting, here, remembering is seen as central to any kind of agreement. And this could be symbolic ways of dealing with the past through memorials, through apologies, through some kind of acknowledgement, or through more substantive ways, like through reparations, criminal trials, and so forth. And, and all these mechanisms, be it symbolic, legal, and, and so forth, they all bring the past somehow to the, ta to the table. And transitional justice has been purposely excluded from the Oslo peace process. I mean, any attempt to, to for the, at least on the Palestinian side, when they try to raise the issue of reparations, for example, that's rejected by Israel because it assumes that the Israelis do not want anything that could imply, that could lead them to being responsible for what happened, for example, in 1948 for the refugee problem. Transitional justice usually requires attributing responsibility to or taking responsibility for and this is something that Israel 
categorically rejected. So anytime Palestinian negotiators try to at least bring in transitional justice mechanisms, they're not calling for South Africa or they're not calling for that kind of uh, comprehensive approach. But whenever they do that, they're, they're punished, both by Israel and also by mediators. So the Americans also kind of reject the, these mechanisms. And so there were, there's a, the Palestine Papers, which is this, these negotiations that were hidden, secrets, and that were made public by Al Jazeera. And in these files, you, you, there's a section where the Palestinian negotiators bring up the issue of reparations. And Condoleezza Rice says, no, reparations are backward looking, just like reparations for, for slavery, which is an interesting historical analogy. So we should, we should be only forward looking and not backward looking. What you hint at in your uh, very interesting and concise uh, case brief, which once again, we remind the listeners they can find online, is that there is an ethical problem here. And if we define ethics as trying to find solutions that are fair and just to the parties involved, there was something lacking here. So you believe if you go back in history that they should have looked differently at memory. Are there things to learn from this for other peace processes as well? So this is from the Palestinian side. And here it's hard for me to dissociate myself because I speak as a Palestinian, someone who is very critical of the Oslo peace process and someone who you know, I was affected by this in many, many ways. But one common complaint from the Palestinian side is that the peace process was ahistorical. First of all, it, it did not deal with these historical issues. And not only that, it actually added one more layer of historical denial. It actually, you know, you have to, if you read the peace process with what came before it, which is, you know, 50 years of systematic denial of, of Palestinian history and memory and its criminalization, just as I mentioned, you know, when I grew up, you know, there's no public Palestinian memory, it's, it's criminalized. They see the also peace process as adding yet one more layer of denial, is that now we're going to have this denial on paper. The Palestinian refugee issue will be completely erased. You know, we'll treat it as a humanitarian issue. They might get some kind of compensation, which we will not pay for. The Israelis do not want to pay for it directly. And that's it. So th there is worry amongst the Palestinians, of course, of this early on. And as the peace process fails, and it fails quite early, they get more and more worried. So memory becomes something that they start mobilizing more in the streets as intellectuals to kind of claim and demand justice. So memory is, yes, inherently linked to justice in the sense, to recognition. So demand for apologies, recognition, all these come with claims to justice. Now, of course, for the Israelis, it's the exact opposite. And they would, so there's many talk amongst the Israeli negotiators of, like, we need just a peace, not a just peace, because a just peace require, it ends up leading to all these fundamental disagreements about what happened. And as you have worked on another context, of course, Israeli memory is also complex. It's a touchy issue. Yes. You have the whole background of the Holocaust that you have written excellently yes. about in other contexts. And we know, of course, that many listeners here will feel that this is an issue where they do have strong opinions, all the more important to be able to talk about the ethics of it. We thank you so much for sharing your thoughts from the case brief. Uh, these are uh, issues that are explored also in other case briefs within our project, and which we hope will lead to a better and fuller understanding of the ethical aspects of peace negotiations. So in our project, we try to situate the types of questions that we now just uh, discussed 
in a broader debate on ethical issues in peace negotiations. So one could isolate this topic of how to deal with uh, memory, transitional justice, and compare that across cases. But then you would have two problems with that. Firstly, you could easily lose touch of the context where these will be very different settings and where it's very different to speak of transitional justice in uh, negotiations on the roadmap or terms of future negotiations than if it's in the setting of a comprehensive peace agreement where you kind of draw the last lines of a long story of negotiations. The other problem with isolating a question like this is that you might lose sight of how it relates also to other aspects like who the participants in the negotiations are, how the process is organized, and so on. So in the conclusion of your, your case brief, you do comment on this explicitly and say that this has something to do with who were also in the negotiations at the time. How, how do you see this connection between the question of memory and the participation in the negotiations? So let me begin with just a brief comment first, which will allow me to better elaborate on my answer to your question, is that we should differentiate between two things. Like there's the past being brought to the table, the past being an object of negotiation, or the past already being made and remade through the actual setting of the negotiations without the parties explicitly talking about it. And participation here is a clear example, right? Just who is allowed to be on the table and who's not is itself reflective of a certain narrative, an historical narrative. And in the Palestinian case, the it was very much limited to an issue of like the West Bank and Gaza. So Arab Palestinians, Palestine means Palestinians living in Israel who have Israeli citizenship, were completely excluded from the issue as if they were no longer part of the Palestinian cause. And that's completely wrong. That's a, a misreading of history. And it's also, it goes directly against a way of framing the Palestinian issue. So just these little things like that already tells you what kind of narrative is being promoted by the peace process. Similarly, the exclusion of refugees. Now, refugees were an object of negotiations, and intensively so, you know. There were lots of reports and numbers and, I mean, so many studies. But the refugees were always objects and never subjects. So never, ever was there an attempt to, for example, to hear their story. I mean, you could imagine different ways where these refugees are giving a voice, right? Acknowledge as such, or even negotiators saying, we acknowledge that this tragedy happened. Now, there are, towards the end of negotiations, some elements of this by some Israeli negotiators, but I'll put this aside. But just this process of who's included and who's not is itself indicative of a certain story. So that's why I link memory to issues of participation. And I think this, and if you would think of other cases where there's an insistence on truth commissions, which have their flaws, of course, but truth commissions is an arena for the victims to voice their stories. Hmm. What about how the different participants at the in the negotiations behaved when the others, for instance, started to talk about history? Did that affect the dynamics? So that's I think that is actually a very fascinating issue, which has been a bit understudied because maybe because the data we have of negotiations is itself poor, right? We rely on memoirs, we rely on interviews, but no one has a full picture of what happened there. Right? These are usually secret negotiations. 
And here it also depends on what you mean by history, but there's tons of examples. I mean, just historical analogies, for example, right? The amount of times where negotiators create or use historical analogies to advance a certain position. It's quite fascinating. So you talked earlier about the Holocaust, Henrik, which is, of course, you know, it, it's ever-present in the, the consciousness of Israelis. But at one point in the negotiations, Nabil Shaf, who's the, one of you know, the, the uh, main Palestinian negotiators, asks, he's like, you know, we should think of a compensation scheme for Palestinian refugees, just like there was compensation for Jewish victims of the Holocaust. Now, you can imagine the reaction of the Jewish negotiator or the Israeli negotiator, where there's shock and disbelief of like, are you creating an analogy between the Holocaust and the Nakba here? He's not. He's actually creating an analogy between the compensation for victims and the compensations for the Holocaust sets the standards in international society for how this issue should be dealt with. So here there's a historical analogy and understood differently by both actors. And then the mediator has to come in, and that was Bill Clinton at the time, and he says, of course we cannot compare. Just kind of try to put things back in a, a bit in order. So historical analogies is one thing. Personal testimonies or stories of, I mean, all these negotiators are people who, I mean, the Palestinian side, these are people who were fought with the PLO. These people were refugees, right? I mean, the PLO originally was, uh, Fatah was a, generation of, of, of refugees that took matters into their own hands and now end up on the negotiating table. So they will bring their stories of refugeehood, you know, to, to the table itself. I was expelled. My father's originally from here. I want to go back to it. Similarly, Israeli negotiators do the same thing. They bring their own stories because they fought in 1948 or 1967. So if you just think of different kinds of memory, you know, or it could be official memory, you know, what do we include in textbooks or not? There's a wide range of how the past is used in negotiations, or just as a you know, strategically, for example. Mm. Mm. And then there's different, you know, there's in the negotiation itself, and there's also politicians signaling to their own people, like they will make outrageous historical claims, like Netanyahu, you know, the Palestinians are responsible for the Holocaust, which makes no sense. But that's clearly a tactic used to mobilize domestic political opinion against any kind of diplomatic effort. So there's a wide range of ways in which the past is brought, used to hinder further negotiations, and I, which it requires more systematic analysis, which has not been done as far as well. You are doing part of it, and you're helping us with it at this very moment. So that's that's truly useful. Um, there's a good expression in English called "kicking the can down the road," meaning you know we'll come to it later, which is linked to what you talk about as strategic forgetting. Let's look at that in the Oslo context, because there are different stages of negotiations. You have pre-negotiations, you have ceasefire agreements, you have the drawing up of roadmaps, you have partial peace agreements, you have comprehensive peace agreements. Was the thinking among the participants that this is just the first step so we can come back to it later? And how would you judge if that was the case uh, from an ethical point of view, from actually raising issues that are important so we can get to a deal that is fair? Uh, what, was that a mistake they made at the time? So let's just think of, so your first question is, like, at what point does memory enter negotiations? Is it something that's part of like a, a comprehensive agreement at the end? Is it something that should figure in the beginning? Well, in this case, as I, as I mentioned, at least in the Oslo peace process, clearly it's sidelined from the very beginning as seen as a problem of, of like spoilage from within the room as, a, as something that's only going to is counterproductive and the key word here is pragmatism so that's something that appears from the very beginning that we need a pragmatic peace process and pragmatism means according to the Norwegian 
website for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Pragmatism is defined in this case of Israel and Palestinians as a way of putting history aside. So in that sense, yes, the way it's designed is that we should not address this early on, we address it later. But again, we have to distinguish between what people agree to do and what's actually happening. Because one could also argue that history is already there from the very beginning. It's already at the table before the people enter the negotiations. So it just, again, it depends on how you analyze it. And I, I'm very interested in my other work is to see on how the very agreement to partition the land imposes a certain reading of history, even before you actually divide it. You're already what I call partitioning history, partitioning memory. So this is a book I'm currently working on, struggling with a bit, <laughs> to be honest. But the idea is that actually you don't have to dig into so much into what was brought to the table because at the table there was already an agreement that was kind of made. And we, and what you need to study is how it kind of played out in practice, how this t history was partitioned as we tried to partition the land. Right. And in our project, we also... Uh, look into the procedures of uh, of negotiations, and you you address this now, because some of those issues relate to whether the negotiations are open or secret. To what extent uh, the the process is subject to broad consultations and so on, and it would be interesting to hearing your thoughts on how the secrecy of the Oslo talks contributed to the possibility for strategically postponing the question of the past, right? So that's one thing. Uh, and, and I think you've already uh, covered that to a certain extent. Then uh, we also focus on the role of principles in negotiations. So for instance, uh, there's an article in Ethics and National Affairs arguing that the problem with the Oslo process was that they didn't agree on human rights as a foundation for the negotiation. So they should have conducted this on the basis of principles of human rights. One could imagine the principle of dealing with the past or transitional justice as a foundational principle of negotiations. And it would be tempting to think of this as a general ideal a general ideal that one should include this aspect because it relates so much to people's sense of justice, as you've explained. But and now I'm turning to your opinion. So now I'm not asking you to represent one of the sides. I'm curious about your own thinking on whether there is always a need to deal with the past or whether there are certain situations or conditions under which it would be permissible not to do so. So answering this question in the abstract is obviously extremely difficult, right? Because you could imagine a situation where two parties of equal weight who maybe agree that this is actually the best way to do that. I can't think of any right now. I mean, you could think of France, Germany, maybe, you know, like two countries who fought, have history of wars and who decide eventually to move on after all these bloody wars. And they decide that dealing with the past is not the best way to, to move forward. But I so I think you have to think of case by case. But also what's important to stress here, and again, thinking of ethics, not simply as like what one ought to do, right? Like as if I'm coming here, armchair philosopher, just telling people what they ought to do, which is not something that I, I, 
I appreciate or, or like very much. Let's just think of ethics and norms in a more sociological sense, as in like what's already practiced by international society and what are the expectations for, you know, conflicting parties, like what should they do with this issue? And here actually memory has an important role to play because taking a long step back if you think of, you think of memory typically as an internal thing right something that it's my own memory individually and then if it's collectively it's, it's a matter for people right so national self-determination is an attempt to fight to protect for one's history to create institutions where that history could be promoted and this is how memory has evolved politically right this has usually been contained to certain groups what happens after world war one is that memory becomes an international issue yeah, as as memory was a, a cause for conflict, and World War One is a good example. There's this understanding that okay, if memory matters so much for the identity of the conflicting parties, it should also matter for negotiations. And soon after World War One, with the League of Nations, you have practices such as bilateral historical commissions, which is an attempt to bring historians from different sides to review each other's textbooks because they know that the future generation is being told a story, which could fuel another conflict. Let's try to deal with this. And interestingly, these practices begin in Scandinavia before the League of Nations between Denmark, Sweden, and Norway. But the point here is that already after World War I, memory becomes part of international norms, telling people how they ought to deal with peace. And you have standardized ways of doing it. You have certain institutions. And then after, you know, with World War II, this takes on even more importance with the UN and with UNESCO. And then you have dealing with the Holocaust, which creates... So you have increasingly what a, a standardization of memorial practices at the global level. And this is what I meant by that memory is already at the table. So Israelis and Palestinians don't necessarily have to agree to bring memory to the table. There's already a way of dealing with it internationally, certain expectations that are there. And when you refer to this uh, idea that Palestinians and Israelis should be negotiating with human rights, the human rights framework. Well, the human rights framework is infused with memorial practices that have a lot to do with also with the memory of the Holocaust and, and so forth. So from this perspective, the idea and the agreement internationally is that the past does matter. I mean, so much so that I think it, it, it becomes depersonalized. I mean, it's almost like these standard ways of dealing with it are already there that the actors just simply have to kind of consult these, these manuals. And if you just look at architecture, you know, how the way memorials are built, they're all built in the same way, right? They have common aesthetic, and that just speaks to the way this, these memory practices are standardized at the international level. Right. Mm. Mm. That's very interesting, the way in which you link human rights, which to many people is a question of basic principles, to narratives and memory, because you cannot start a conversation on basic human rights without talking about the human beings and their context. But let me ask one question at the ending here. Um, Let's say that we do bring these things into negotiations. And sometimes, of course, that is done more or less successfully. How can intangible damages to human beings actually be addressed? You know, things like intergenerational trauma. Some things are relatively easy to assess. You know, how much is this piece of land worth? Should this be yours or ours? Who should be in that building? But these are, you know, to many people intangibles, but you still want to bring them to the table. Do you think it is possible to come to the negotiation table and say, we have for generations been fighting a trauma 
because of what we have experienced. You have to take that seriously. How, how do you do that? How do you talk about those things in a way that also can lead to tangible, serious agreements? Yeah, that's a, that's a difficult question. I mean, so one way of looking at it is the way the past is actually excluded from negotiations, right? And then you see the look at the question from a negative perspective. It's like the attempts to engage in more historical denial and, and thinking that's that's unjust and that needs to be fixed. So the question to be asked here is to what degree can negotiators and mediators and a peace process actually address this issue? And there are limits, right? And there are limits that should be acknowledged because these negotiations, which are infused with power relations, with strategic thinking, instrumentalization, you know, I mean, there's already very little ethics to begin with. So to think of the ethics of memory being part of these negotiations is, is quite demanding. So I think you should also just recognize that there's a limit to what these people could do, right? But their role is very important. And that's that's where there's a this kind of dilemma. Like There's little that they could actually do to address things like trauma and, and so forth. And yet, what they do is so, so, so important for dealing with these issues. And this has to do with things like, I mean, acknowledgement, for example, is so important here. Like, the, 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 there was a, when the Israel recognized the PLO, first of all, they only recognized the PLO. They didn't recognize, well, they recognized them as a representative of a Palestinian people. Some argued at the time is that this could have been a moment which could have been so much more significant, right? Rather than an asymmetric recognition between the PLO recognizing Israel and Israel only recognizing a representative of a people. This could have been a moment to say, we recognize you, the people you represent, and we recognize that there's a long history of suffering and that we are the cause of this also. And now I don't know how you'd word it and because this is not my job to do that, especially I'm not here to word an apology for an Israeli official. But you could imagine that these moments of recognition could be so crucial for setting a tone for what's to come. And this is an issue of signaling. So this is a place where negotiations play a crucial role because this is your signaling to the people that we're going to address these issues. Now, when you don't address it, and you hold back and you refuse to address it, then you're sing- sending other signals as well. So it, it's a difficult answer, Henrik. I think it's a good one. And you at least have sent the signal to Christopher and myself and our listener, uh, listeners, we hope there are several, <laughs> that the question of memory is infused in any complex peace negotiation. That's why it's complex, because we are actually dealing with really difficult things. And we thank you for the contribution that you made to our project. Uh, that's truly valuable. We thank you for taking the time thank to discuss you with really us here. And we thank the listeners, don't we, Christopher? Because we will be back, because we'll do more of these. Absolutely. Absolutely. So thank you very much to our listeners, and not least to you, Nadim. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you.